Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Eleven Northern Manitoba First Nations in Canada are declaring a state of emergency. The declaration cites deficiencies in public safety, health services, and infrastructure. A letter from the nations calls for immediate government intervention. This comes after several other nations in Canada declared their own emergencies. We'll zero in on some of the underlying issues facing First Nations people that prompts calls for action, right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Organized indigenous groups in Guatemala have declared victory after calling for a national work stoppage and blocking highways for two days to protest government regulations they say would cripple small farmers and poor people. Maria Martin reports. The protests were organized by the indigenous group called 48 Cantones, 48 villages, in the province of Totonicapan. Other Maya organizations joined, stopping traffic at major crossroads and ports and threatening to block Guatemala's international airport. The protests were sparked by a proposed law and one already in effect, which would increase taxes on small farmers, forcing them to raise the cost of staples they sell at markets. The protests were so successful that government officials called for a dialogue. The outcome of this was a withdrawal of the offending measures. Indigenous leaders in Guatemala say this shows what a united front can accomplish. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. President Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau have announced a forthcoming deal to reduce and mitigate the impact of pollution flowing into Montana and Idaho from Canadian coal mines. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton has more. On Friday, Biden and Trudeau announced in a joint statement that an agreement to reduce and mitigate selenium pollution flowing from British Columbia coal mines in the Elk River Valley could be struck sometime this summer, though no details beyond that were released. Selenium pollution at high concentrations can harm fish populations. Montana, Idaho, and U.S. environmental officials have approved a lower standard for Lake Kukanusa and the Kootenai River to protect fish, but British Columbia has not changed its regulation. The Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, the Kootenai Tribe of Idaho, and the Tanaha Nation in British Columbia are pushing the U.S. and Canada to set up a tribally-led watershed board in order to address the issue. The tribes in a press release said they will reiterate that request during a visit to Washington, D.C. this week. I'm Aaron Bolton. A Chupic elder who's been one of the driving forces in the revival of native drumming and dancing in southwest Alaska was honored at the Jumai Dance Festival in Bethel last weekend. Before John Pengayak received the award, which named him a living treasure, about two dozen of his children and grandchildren joined him on stage to sing, dance, and drum. At 74, John Pingayuk is as passionate as ever. As a boy, he was schooled by his grandfather who passed on his songs and traditions despite pressure from churches to end the practice. Pingayuk says they convinced people that dancing was wrong and failed to understand that it was the native way of making prayer. He told the crowd it's up to them to break free from what he called the big lie. I'm set free because what I've done 
Pingayuk from Chivac says this award is not just for the work he does in the community, but for all those who make the effort to pass on their native traditions. He says if you have cultural knowledge, it's your duty to share it. Just the way my elders were in those days. They said, this is not mine to keep. It's for me to pass it on to the new generation. Pingayuk led one of the most moving events, the Heart of the Drum, a healing ceremony in which drummers from every dance group formed a processional and stationed themselves throughout the crowd, playing quietly at first, then building to a crescendo. Pingayuk says he sang a very ancient song that celebrates unity to remind people that they have the power to take back their culture. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB who support this program. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the Powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, speaking with you today from Lewiston, Idaho. A regional governing body in northern Manitoba says federal government neglect is at the root of serious issues that cost the lives and well-being of their citizens. The Kiwetan Tribal Council comprises 11 First Nations communities. The council declared a state of emergency, citing deficiencies in public safety, health care, and infrastructure. All areas that the federal government in Canada is responsible for. The action comes after what council members say is a spate of violence, suicides, and preventable deaths and illnesses. Kiwetan is the latest in a string of similar actions by other First Nations communities facing deaths and public health and safety problems. Today we'll hear from leaders of the Kiwetan Tribal Council about the underlying issues and discuss possible solutions. Do you see similar issues and challenges in your community? Do you have ideas for how to improve some of these disparities? Join today's conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Winnipeg in Manitoba, Canada, is Grand Chief Walter Wastesekut. He is the Grand Chief of the Kuwaitan Tribal Council. He is from First, excuse me, he's from York Factory First Nation. Walter, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you very much. Also joining us from Winnipeg in Manitoba, Canada is George Neepin. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Kuwaitan Tribal Council. He is from Fox Lake Cree Nation. George, welcome to Native America Calling as well. Yeah, thank you and good afternoon. Walter, I'd like to begin with you and not many announcements grab more attention than a state of emergency declaration. What prompted such a drastic action by your government? 
Well, we had an, an emergency meeting uh, prior to the uh, announcement, and uh, our leaders had an opportunity to discuss the situation in each of their communities. And for the leadership in each of these communities, it's a constant state of crisis. And the, uh, their efforts to circumvent that uh, atmosphere of crisis have been uh, stymied by different uh, government policies, uh, legislation. And uh, although two of our nations had declared a state of emergency prior to our original declaration, uh, there was minimal response to their, to their plight. So we had to do something to uh, bring everybody into a united front to say that uh, we can't we can't uh, continue in this way. Mm-hmm. Now, Walter, you mentioned two communities there within the council that declared state of emergencies earlier, but the Kuwaitan Tribal Council has it ever before declared a general state of emergency like this for for all of the communities that it represents? No. No, I'm not sure that uh, this has been done anywhere in Manitoba before, but uh, we have a long history of uh, colonial structures interfering with our lives, uh, genocidal practices that continue to impact our people. Uh, It's a societal norm in Canada. It's so normal that people don't know it exists. I often refer to it as racism. Racism is alive and well in this country. And uh, it's uh, spurned on by the uh, Indian Act. We have a piece of legislation in this country that governs uh, uh, our lives from birth until death. In In our communities, Life begins outside of our communities, out, away from our families. And the same thing with death. It happens outside of our communities and, and, and away from our families uh, most of the time. I say most of the time because the health services we are forced to access in this country are so uh, so poor that our people rely on or are uh, exposed to what we refer to as Tylenol medicine. If I am sick in one of our nations and I go and seek medical attention, I go to the nursing station, and there they will do a quick assessment and prescribe me Tylenol pills to take away the pain, and they will send me home. And if uh, my illness persists and I go back, they'll do the same thing. Uh, just uh, a little over a week ago, this happened to a 36-year-old woman in one of our communities who reported to the nursing station and was turned away each time with uh, Tylenol, and she died. But she's mm. not the only case. That's not the only case where that's happened. The situation is, uh... in her is just very, very dire. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it is. And uh, Walter, what has been the response then from the Canadian government since this declaration of a state of emergency? Uh, we have had the regional representative uh, reach out. I had, uh, following the declaration, 
which took place in Winnipeg, I drove home the following day, Friday. And on my way home, I was uh, one of the regional representatives reached out and asked if we uh, would like to have a meeting to discuss uh, potential options. So we did that yesterday morning. So we have uh, two regional uh, representatives that uh, we met with yesterday morning. And they have offered uh, some initial uh, funding to assist us to pull everybody together to look at uh, short, medium, and long-term strategies to deal with our crisis situation. So they've offered funding. Uh, Are you confident that that funding is going to be enough to address some of these needs as well as these other disparities that you're talking about today? Not not at all. I... uh, Inform them that uh, the amount of money that they were offering at that time was not enough, and they agree with that. Uh, I'm hoping to meet uh, next week, towards the end of the week, in Ottawa with the Minister of Health, uh, Minister Haju. She's the Minister of Health for Canada. So I'm hoping to meet with her and other ministers in Ottawa and uh, bring forward a much larger budget. Uh, one example is the uh, our, nine of our 11 communities are remote and isolated communities. They have no connection to the provincial road system. They rely on winter roads and air service. So that alone to uh, construct road infrastructure into these communities, that's going to be approximately $5 billion dollars. That's just a road network, and we're talking about improvements in uh, public safety, like policing, fire protection, health care services. So the, the budget amount is going to be much more than the amount I was initially offered the other day. Mm. And Walter, tell us more about the community there. And just from from your fellow citizens, uh, what's their response been since this declaration? I'd imagine they're supportive. Is that right? Yes. Uh, as I said, we met with the 11 leaders. One of them, uh, unfortunately, couldn't make it to the meeting, but he did join us on uh, Zoom. And uh, everybody in the room uh, had a purpose of uniting and making the declaration. Uh, comments I've received uh, following the declaration have been very supportive. Uh, many people saying that uh, this has been going on for so long, it's about time that it's happened. So I've received a lot of uh, positive feedback, supportive feedback. And what about other communities there in Canada, First Nations communities and other, independent of the federal government? Have any of those uh, other people reached out in support of uh, this declaration or with any offers of solidarity or influence? I have received uh, uh, supportive comments from uh, representatives from Anishinaanu Okamawin. Uh, they are referred commonly referred to as the Island Lake uh, people in a group of uh, four communities in uh, northern Manitoba. And uh, comments I've received is that they're very uh, supportive of what we're doing. So, 
Well, that sounds promising. And so you, you declared this state of emergency and it sounds like you traveled to do that. Did this go uh, over television? Was it announced through social media? How did you actually make this initial declaration, this statement? We had a, we had a uh, press conference in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, where the press was invited to come uh, to listen to the announcement. We had a good uh, cross-section of uh, different media outlets that showed up. Well, folks, today on our show, we're talking with Grand Chief Walter Wastasikut. He is uh, the Grand Chief of the Kuwaitan Tribal Council. He's from York Factory First Nation. He's speaking with us from Winnipeg in, in Manitoba, Canada. And we're learning more about this state of emergency declaration that was declared by the Tribal Council with regard to a wide, wide range of disparities that uh, date back a number of years there amongst these First Nations communities. And uh, we're learning more about uh, the nature of these disparities and also what the reception has been regarding this state of emergency declaration. On our show, we also have George Niepen. He's the chief executive officer of the Kuwaitan Tribal Council. And we're going to hear more from George uh, after this break uh, about his role in the state of emergency declaration. And anybody who can relate to what these folks are dealing with up in Canada right now, who has any thoughts, any comments for, for what it means uh, when a tribal community is facing such dire circumstances that they feel compelled to issue a state of emergency uh, please give us a call. We would love to hear your thoughts, your comments, your insights. 1-800-996-2848. We close out Women's History Month with stories about Native women warriors. A number of women stand out in history as fearless and talented assets on the battlefield. Their contributions are recounted among their tribes and in history books. We'll hear some of their stories on the next Native America Calling. If you're age 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colorectal cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with leaders of the Kuwaitan Tribal Council about issues facing the communities they represent in northern Manitoba, Canada. Are there parallels you're hearing in your community? Are you familiar with the problems First Nations communities face in Canada? If so, you can contribute to today's conversation by calling in at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE, and our phone lines are open right now. We've got our producers. They are waiting for your call, so let us know. Share your insights, share your comments, ask questions, 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. 
I'd like to bring in our next guest now, George Neepin. Again, he is the chief executive officer of the Kiwetan Tribal Council. And George, please uh, tell us uh, specifically about your role as chief executive officer with regard to this declaration, this uh, state of emergency crisis. Well, I've been with the uh, Tribal Council for maybe six and a half years, seven years, and um, we're, we are the most uh, northern-based in, here in Manitoba. Um, our communities, as previously mentioned, are, are remote and isolated. My role was to assist the um, planning and coordination of this press release and to ensure uh, that uh, we were able to get all the leaders and uh, we did really well, actually. We had 10 of the 11 chiefs attend in person at the press conference, and that uh, one of them was uh, joined us by Zoom. And, of course, uh, the reason why he was absent was because of uh, his inability to get out of his community to join us here in Winnipeg. Mm. Well, it's wonderful to hear there was such strong turnout. And it sounds like there was a, a wide range of press, too. Were you satisfied that the, the right uh, media outlets were there to cover this story as significant as it was? Yes, uh, we had uh, our national broadcaster was there. Uh, there's about three or four representatives from that uh, corporation that was there. And uh, we've gotten, uh, I've seen, I've seen uh, uh, some positive responses that uh, we've gotten since that uh, uh, since that press release occurred, and that uh, I, I really believe that um, um, the key thing is for the leaders to be able to provide uh, recommendations and uh, some uh, obvious uh, services that are lacking to our communities. And one of the things that the leaders mentioned was that we need, or they need, to uh, come together as. Um, leaders of their communities and develop a strategic plan on how to address uh, the current state that our communities are in. A strategic plan. Um, how, how long do you think it would take to put together a strategic plan? And what would be the, the key elements that would need to be included in that strategic plan to make it effective? Yeah, well, this, uh, this uh, you know, it's, uh, we have a lot of common issues that affect us. One of them is transportation in and out of our communities, and the high cost uh, that happens there, plus uh, any kind of uh, extended health care that we require, we have to either, they all have to leave their communities and go into the uh, nearest uh, uh, community city, and that's Thompson, but Thompson's not that equipped uh, to provide the care that's required for special care, and so they have to be transferred further down south uh, to Winnipeg. And, you know, at the end of the day, basically, our communities are ill-equipped. They can't really retain a lot of the sick and the unhealthy in their communities and the elderly. I mean, whenever, like, uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. When an elder is paneled at a level four, meaning that they need uh, uh, constant care, our communities can't, can't provide that service. So, unfortunately, a lot, of our, a lot of our sick and elderly have to leave our communities because our communities can't sustain can't sustain them uh, they have to move out of the community and that's very uh, detrimental to the, especially the elders because they're now, now they're separated from their family mm -hmm. and as i understand it i mean some of these communities there, there are even issues like with regard to having a pilot 
and access to aircraft that can fly in and out of communities uh, in, in the case of some of these emergencies. Can you talk about that as well? Well, you know, I, you know, I have a, a, a different opinion on that. I'm not sure with this pilot shortages. That's like uh, uh, telling somebody in the community, well, the reason why you're lacking adequate health services is because we don't have nurses, we don't have doctors. You know, uh, I don't know, is that acceptable? And that's what the Grand Chief refers to as be, it's becoming the norm. So we start, people start accepting the fact that, okay, there's no services because we're out, we're out of pilots. And I, I don't think so. I really think that uh, uh, air, the air transportation people up here in our, in our territory need, need to really assess just what kind of level of services that they're, that they're providing to our communities. Because look, just eight of our communities are 100% dependent on quality air transportation in and out of our communities. And you know now, now right now, our winter roads are now starting to uh, are starting to melt. So the uh, you know the communities have to haul their whatever supplies that they need for the summer, like uh, uh, their housing material, uh, their oil, their fuel. There's four of our communities are, are still uh, uh, have to have diesel generated. Uh, they have to haul fuel uh, for the summer. So, I mean. You know what's acceptable and unaccept, unacceptable because if a service is lacking, is, is it because of a lack of a pilot? If I can't provide quality health care, is it because someone is unable to provide uh, uh, nurses and doctors? Well, that's not an accept. It's not acceptable. Right, right. I understand, George. Um... What's your previous experience working with the the Canadian government regarding access to services in the past? Have, have they been receptive to the needs of the First Nations communities that, that you and, and Walter represent? Um, you know, uh, you know the, our province is a huge province. Um, we have a north and south, you know, down south here are... Uh, they're more accessible, and this is where the regional health centers are way down here. Southern, we're about uh, probably about 600, 700 uh, miles from Winnipeg, which is where at, at, at some point in time, anyone that's being medevaced or um, removed from our communities will likely end up in Winnipeg for, you know, for, for health care, and then, they're, then they return back to our communities. So a lot of it is, I mean, transportation. Look at our ground transportation. We have no ground transportation per se here in Manitoba. We have two or three companies that are trying to uh, provide ground transportation, but they're they're having problems and issues. And and unfortunately, a couple of these uh, ground transportation uh, have stalled. And you know, we're minus 50, minus 40 up here sometimes, and uh, you can't have a vehicle stalling in the middle of nowhere. It, it, it puts a lot of our travelers and our and our, uh, and our uh, patients that are in transit from north to south in jeopardy. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, now, now, what happens here in the next few months as, as the weather turns to spring and some of these freezing conditions uh, let up? 
do you think that's in any way going to lessen the severity of this this crisis that you're facing, or is it just going to continue with some of these other larger systemic disparities that you're describing today with regard to, to some of these transportation issues and, and the lack of adequate health care and such? Well, you know, the, this uh, poor uh, accessibility that we have in our remote and isolated communities, it adds to the cost of living, and it's year-round. I mean, uh, we have uh, uh, grocery stores that the prices are outrageous. We have uh, uh, transportation in and out of our communities. You'd be very surprised. Like, for instance, I'll give you an, an example in Canadian dollars. From Thompson to Winnipeg, it's $1,800 return. Now, that's Canadian dollars, I realize that. But, you know, that's an outrageous amount that we have to pay. And a lot of our patients are having to pay that uh, to come to uh, to come to Winnipeg for for care. Yeah, these these inflationary prices right now are just hitting everybody so hard, both uh, down here in the states and, of course, up there, uh, you folks in Canada. George, earlier we heard Walter mention that the Canadian government has offered some funding, but he said it wasn't nearly enough, not nearly enough money to to properly address some of these issues we're talking about today. But in addition to funding, what else does the Canadian government need to do differently uh, in order to address some of these dire, dire needs that we're talking about today? Well, um well, the Canadian government is. Um, I'm just kind of focused on health here for a bit. They they do they've uh, they've engaged the regional, uh, provincial uh, organization to start with. It's, they're calling it health transformation. It's uh, it's a way of uh, transferring the role and function and responsibilities of healthcare to the nation. But they've done that for several years now. But I'm I'm thinking that there has to be real, a real effort made uh, by the Canadian government to have community-based programming. A lot of our communities are, are you know, you just have uh, two or three nurses in these communities, and they basically um, um, stabilize the patient before moving them onward to either Thompson, which is a local regional center, and then. And then back to and then down to Winnipeg, you know. So I really think that the, in order for us to really do uh, a, a good services, first of all, is to engage the leaders like the, like as they recommended. Let's get together. Let's have a strategic plan. But the second thing I really think is that the communities, anything that has to be done, should be should be regional and community based. I think that's got to mm. be the priority. Not develop programs in Thompson and in Winnipeg. I think I think the communities have to have these services. Sure, sure. Let's go ahead and go to the phones now where we have Justin listening on KMHA in Newtown, North Dakota, up in uh, Fort Berthold. And Justin, I understand you have a question regarding how health care access differs uh, between First Nations people in Canada and, and us folks down here in the lower 48. Hi, Justin. Thanks for calling in today. Hey, Sean. I did have a question. This is regarding uh, health care. You know, I've been living in the States for over 15 years. And uh, coming from the universal health care that I've been used to most of my life, what, what kind of things can I transition into health care benefiting myself living in America? 
Okay. So Justin, just to clarify here, uh, you are originally from Canada, but you've been down here in the States for about 15 years? Yes. Okay. All righty. Um, well, let's go ahead and have George respond to that. George, um, any insights you can offer to Justin, uh, somebody who's a First Nations person from Canada, but now lives in the U.S. and uh, no longer enjoys the universal health care that's available in Canada and now is uh, dealing with the, the U.S. Uh, health care system, which is certainly, uh, you know, has its challenges for sure. What's your thought on that, George? Well, it's he, he's right about universal health care. We're supposed to have uh, our rights to health is uh, portable. Um, and also we have what they call non-insured health benefits uh, like our uh, our transportation and our uh, prescription drugs, those are all covered. Um, yeah, but there is a huge difference from here to where, where he's now living. But um, I'm not really sure what advice I could give him living down there. I mean, uh, um, like I said, the only thing that I know is that uh, these are portable, supposedly portable uh, rights to health care. Okay. Well, anybody listening today who has any thoughts on, on Justin's question regarding the healthcare differences between um, Native peoples in Canada and the U.S., I'd sure appreciate uh, you calling in with any insights. And I would just like to ask the question uh, for anyone, any Native person who has lived in both Canada and in the United States, where did you receive better health care? In which country did you feel like you received better access to health care, uh, easier referrals, Better Health Care, please give us a call. Let us know your thoughts, your insights. The number to call, 1-800-996-2848. Again, that number is 1-800-996-2848. And let's go back to George Niepen now. And George, tell us a little bit more about these communities. You've mentioned uh, very rural, some of them pretty far north, especially now with the cold, cold weather, some of these drastic conditions. About how many uh, citizens live in, in these different communities uh, that you represent and uh What's uh, the way of life there on a typical day? Well, it's about this, uh, our population is about 20,000. And um, we're, we're around uh, a city up in Thompson, up, up north, and it's called Thompson. And uh, a lot of our communities, uh, our members and citizens come to Thompson. But Thompson, Thompson calls itself the hub and that uh, this is where they come for their services, whether it's groceries or uh, health services and judicial services and anything else. Because even when the justice system goes out into our communities, uh, a lot of our a lot of our citizens are being remanded to Thompson, so they have to make their way into Thompson for further court cases. And I mean, everything's is uh, based around uh, the city of Thompson for our goods and services because we don't have the types of services and those types of services in our communities. Okay. And what is the relationship there uh, amongst your people and these residents uh, of Thompson? Uh, is there a good rapport overall? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, there was one time there because uh, the citizens in Thompson felt like that they were um, being overwhelmed by, by, the, by our communities. Like, you know, like a swimming pool like a hockey arena back in the day mm. uh, people felt that uh, because we didn't have these facilities in our communities and we were using uh, those facilities in Thompson 
the locals felt that uh, we were taking away their uh, their facilities through our use. But in time, some of our I mean, fortunately, uh, some of our communities have started to have their own uh, hockey arenas, so we didn't have to go into Thompson. Uh, but we still go into Thompson for our goods and services, though. You know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um... Well, it's good to know there are, are, are more hockey arenas there in some of these First Nations communities that we're talking about today, for sure. And on our show today, we are joined by George Niepen. He's the chief executive officer of the Kuwaitan Tribal Council. He's speaking with us from Winnipeg in Manitoba. And we also have Grand Chief Walter Wastesikut, and he's the Grand Chief of the Kuwaitan Tribal Council. And um, Walter is from York Factory First Nation, and George is Fox Lake Cree Nation. And um, we still have our phone lines open for anybody who would like to ask either of these gentlemen a question regarding this recent state of emergency declaration and uh, some of the disparities that these communities are facing up there in Canada. And our phone lines are open, so give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. If you have any comments regarding health care or law enforcement or transportation issues impacting your community that might parallel to our conversation today, give us a call. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. This Easter, you can find truly unique gifts and menu items from SweetgrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at SpiritMountainRoasting.com news. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still plenty of time to join this conversation about First Nations communities in Canada that have recently declared a state of emergency. Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. On the line is the Grand Chief of the Kuwaitan Tribal Council, Walter Wastesikut and Walter, one issue we haven't discussed uh, in much detail today is that there is also a drug crisis in some of the communities that you represent. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, there, uh, there's a rampant uh, drug crisis. Uh, people that are addicted to uh, crystal meth and other uh, drugs in the communities. Uh, these drugs get into our communities uh, by air, by mail. Uh, now that the winter road is up, uh, the winter road is currently being used. Uh, when uh, police, the RCMP, the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, are called to come and uh, intervene, they, they're not effective. Uh, in most cases, non-responsive. They cite the uh, Charter on uh, Freedom and Rights, uh, protect, and they protect the uh, drug dealers that way. So the response to the policing for the drug crisis is uh, minimal. It's not effective. 
I was in one of, I was in one of our nations where there was an incident uh, in one of the at one of the uh, units. So the uh, police attended at the incident, and uh, so did the, uh, the chief and the local counselors. They were already there. When the person came out of the building, there were there were guns aimed at him. One of the counselors put put his life between his citizen and those guns. He didn't want his uh, citizen killed, his person, his uh, band member killed. So these are situations that continue. There have been shootings. Uh, the uh, when we refer to public safety in our declaration for a regional state of emergency, we're talking about the ineffective or lack of police response to this uh, crisis that's going on locally as far as the uh, uh, drug epidemic is concerned. And there's also the uh, uh, lack of resources to, to uh, combat fires uh, for fire suppression fire protection in our communities. Uh, within, the, within the last month, there have been two major fires in uh, two of our First Nations where uh, housing units have been lost, uh, major uh, apartment buildings have been lost, and that's displaced a lot of families. Okay. And Walter, regarding those fires, as I understand it, uh, those communities didn't have a fire truck, but if they had a fire truck, is it possible that those fires could have been prevented? It's possible. It's possible. But then again, you know, when, uh, when Canada, uh, has offered fire protection, they'll provide a, they'll provide a fire truck, uh, but nowhere to house it, uh, minimal, if any, training to uh, use that fire truck. So the, the support is uh, not really there. The Canadian government has been absent for the most part. Right, right. And you raise a really good point because we, we see that here all the time down here in the lower 48. It's not just enough to have a fire truck or a, a new hospital or something like that. You need the personnel to man those facilities, to staff those facilities. You need the training. Uh, you need those added resources to make those assets functionable. So appreciate uh, those insights, Walter. Let's go back to the phones now where we have Mike who's listening on KWSO in the state of Oregon. Hello, Mike. Hello, how are you doing today? We're doing great, Mike. What's on your mind? Well, I, I heard a gentleman speak there earlier about... Uh, having been a, uh, a resident of Dakotas and a uh, tribal member of the First Nations. And I, I just wanted to throw in there, because he was questioning the health care, uh, that veterans, uh, and I don't know how the uh, social medicine works in Canada, if it recognizes Vietnam specifically, because that's where I was at. Uh, but regardless, as far as the gentleman in the Dakotas, there's a lot of good availability of health care through the Veterans Administration. Uh, and we've got uh, community care. We've got community uh, rural transportation here in Oregon that's uh, been put out by the Oregon Department of uh, 
Veterans Affairs and okay. it, uh, filters, filters down into our local bus system and taxi system. And there's a process involved in it, but veterans can get free transportation. And so that may be something, if it doesn't exist in the Dakota, it would be something perhaps uh, for Dakotians to, to look at and bring up, put on a ballot. Uh, we've got community advocates such as myself. I'm not an officer. I'm just an advocate. And uh, there's a lot of speed bumps involved with community care, veterans care. And uh, so that's what we kind of do is iron out those okay. speed bumps so veterans right. okay. can, can, get, can get the care they need. So uh, okay. here, at, here at Warm Springs... Uh, just trying to get the word out. We've got a, a, a question and answers town hall taking place tomorrow, the 30th. And okay. uh, at, at 1 p.m. here, there is a, a Zoom available on it. If anybody wants that Zoom, they can email me and I'll send it to them. My email okay. is spinflow, S-P-I-N, like a spinning top and F-L-O-W, like flowing water, spinflow12 at gmail.com. Okay, Mike, thank you for sharing those resources. That's Mike who's listening on KWSO. And um, uh, Walter, I just want to ask a quick question. I, I know that Mike's comments were a little bit off point, but um, regarding the Vietnam War, I, I don't know. I don't know the history there with regard to Canada. Um are there Vietnam veterans uh, in Canada? I'm curious to know. I'm not sure. I know we have veterans in Canada. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure that there are Vietnam veterans here. Okay. Yeah, I'm just wondering, to, you know, did, did Canada, um, did they provide uh, troops uh, during the Vietnam War? George, uh, do you have any insights on that? No, I don't. Okay. Well, maybe we can look that up here in just a moment because I'm just I'm curious myself. Uh, you know, we talk so much about issues in the lower 48 in this show, and uh, it's always a pleasure when we have uh, guests from First Nations communities such as these gentlemen today, and we just learn so much about some of the issues and, and challenges they face, as well as just some of these overarching issues that, uh, as Native people, we share in common. Let's go back to the phones. We have David, who's listening in Taos, New Mexico, on station KUNM. Hello, David. You're on Native America Calling. Hi, good morning. Yeah, I'm calling. You know, Canada has been in the news lately with respect to Biden's visit and immigration. And, you know, I've always been struck by the disparity. It seems like uh, immigrants that come in even illegally into Canada, they get services, they get um, green cards, they get housing. They get education immediately while their case is being resolved. And it just seems as if, I mean, even going back for years, it seems as if immigrants are treated better than the First Nations people. I was if there might be any opinion about that. Absolutely. Walter, would you like to respond to uh, David's question? David's calling in from Taos, New Mexico. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, that's a really good observation on your part. Uh, I wish there were many more people that had that view. 
because it is a reality in Canada where the uh, immigrants that arrive here are treated uh, with open arms. Uh, they even occupy uh, hotels uh, until they find uh, their own homes, find employment. Some of them even find uh, employment at the hotels they are being accommodated in until they uh, move on to other jobs. So the situation is uh, is uh, can be confusing. It sure is confusing for those of us that are the original peoples of this land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Walter. Uh, I appreciate, again, all, all of these insights that, that you and George are able to share today. And um, so let's go back now to the, the declaration, uh, the state of the emergency. And obviously, you know, you folks have talked about this strategic plan. You've talked about some limited funding there from the Canadian government. And um, what else needs to be done uh, to ensure that, that the communities that you represent going forward in five years and 10 years and 15 years and 20 years, don't face this same crisis that you folks are facing today? Well, I think uh, there's so much that has to be done. When I uh, came on as uh, Grand Chief, I started thinking 30, 40, 50 years down the road, and that's the way the uh, governments in Canada, when I say governments, I'm referring to the Canadian government and the Manitoba government. They have to be uh, thinking that way as well for future generations. Uh, right now, we have a party system in Canada where everybody's uh, concerned about remaining in power for four years, and half of the, the latter two years of that, they're fighting already for the next uh, four years instead of paying attention to what's needed on the ground. Okay. So, uh, to help uh, the people that we represent, uh, they should be able to enjoy everything other Canadians enjoy in this country. Uh, they should have road access to the uh, provincial road system. They should have uh, uh, aircraft that could get them in and out of the community uh, just as fast as the uh, uh, planes departing uh, Winnipeg International Airport. I'm not saying build an international airport in each uh, first station. What I'm saying is the quality of the uh, airports that they do have should be improved where they can receive jets for medical uh, evacuation, those those uh, kind of supports. Um, there should be a, a physician in each of these communities uh, responding to the uh, needs of the communities. Some of them are larger than others. Some are up to 2,500, 3,000. So those ones could use uh, larger health sports locally. Mm-hmm. Well, um, George, thank you again for um, some of those um, comments, uh, some of those suggestions. And just a, a quick uh, factoid here, folks. We did look into this. Uh, Canada did not officially participate in the Vietnam War. Uh, however, privately, some Canadians did contribute to the war effort, and um, at least 134 Canadians died or 
were reported missing in Vietnam. So just an interesting factoid. Uh, that's for me in a lot of ways because I was very much interested in learning a little bit more after that caller uh, broached that topic regarding the Vietnam War. And uh, George, let's go back to you. So um, other First Nations communities, uh, Métis communities, Inuit communities up there in Canada, uh, what do you know about those communities uh, perhaps facing similar problems to the ones that we're talking about here today regarding the Kiwetan Tribal Council? Yeah, well, the uh, Métis, um, some of them are um, right adjacent to our our uh, our reserves here in our in Canada, and yeah, those uh, Métis communities that are uh, adjacent uh, rely on uh, on the on the same uh, health facility. Most of our remote. Uh, communities that re refer to as nursing stations, much like in any hospital where the nurses are working, you go to the desk and that's what it, that's what it's called, a nursing station. So a lot of our communities are only uh, up, you know, have two or three nurses in the communities, but they don't really do any kind of extended health care. They're unable to really truly assess your situation and condition and uh, they usually do a phone consult with the local doctor to try and provide you with some care, but most of the times they're not equipped to give you the care that's required. And that's uh, that's one of the things that's really hurting our communities is that, like I said, I'm not, and I'm a big advocate for if we're going to do anything, we have to start from the communities. Absolutely. And George, we've talked so much about some of these these challenges you folks are facing right now with regard to the health care, with regard to the transportation, law enforcement. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up the show, but I want to give you the last word. And, and any other issues or, or things we need to consider before we wrap up this conversation regarding uh, this recent declaration, state of emergency? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, um, I think that uh, uh, we have to start... Um, relationship building uh we have to start uh working as a as communities like the leaders have called for us to continue working together and not individually not not declare individual state of emergencies but work together come together on a regular basis and uh and uh advance a united front so that um so that we that all the communities are pushing for communities community-based programming and I do want to conclude by saying Kilanaskumit in, in the Indian language up here and Masi are a Dene language because we're two nations uh, working in, within this tribal council. We have two communities that are of Dene origin and uh, the other nine are uh, Indian origin. All righty. We have now reached the end of our hour. I want to thank both of our guests today, Kiwetan Tribal Council Grand Chief Walter Wastesikut and Kuwaitan Chief Executive Officer George Neepin. Wonderful conversation. Join us again on Native America Calling tomorrow as we learn more about Native women warriors from history. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. Program support by Amerind. 
For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.